A wise counselor once told me to remember that whenever we stand in the light, we can expect to cast a shadow. He said that it was a psychological truth that when we receive any bright and glorious gift, we can expect some dark wages we will have to pay. So it made good sense to me when I learned that in the early church, the story of the temptations of Jesus was clearly linked to the story of the baptism of Jesus. You recall the glorious baptism in the River Jordan when the Spirit of God descended on Jesus and a voice proclaimed, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. After this glorious affirmation, this standing in the light, the very same Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted, where he had to deal with the forces of darkness within and without. The tempter was the devil who has many names in scripture. He's called Satan, Lucifer, the adversary, the accuser. Often people dismiss the devil as superstition or childish personification. Frederick Beekner writes, to take the devil seriously is to take seriously the fact that the total evil in the world is greater than the sum of its parts. Likewise, the total evil in yourself. He goes on to say that to take the devil seriously is also to take seriously our total and spine-tingling freedom. And he reminds us that Lucifer was an angel, was once an angel, who even in paradise was free to get the hell out. It seems no accident that Jesus was led into the wilderness. The wilderness or desert has always had a special place in spiritual formation. There's very little to distract us from the matter at hand. Good and evil loom large in high relief in its barrenness. Early Christians sought solitude in its austerity, and they found abiding closeness there with ultimate reality. Jesus' experience in the desert was prototypical for Christians, but followed in the history of Israel. He was there 40 days as the Israelites wandered 40 years in the wilderness with Moses after they had left Egypt. And like the Israelites, he grew hungry. And it was here that the devil made his first appeal. The opening gambit was a thrust of doubt. If you are the Son of God, in other words, if what happened at your baptism really happened, command this stone to become bread. Jesus was hungry, and this temptation addressed his physical needs and his mission. Would he become the great provider? Always there are those who think food is the answer. It's difficult to think of the elderly making a meal of tea and crackers or of children with no milk. Clearly feeding the hungry is part of any new world mandate, but is food all there is to it? And as you just heard in the first lesson, the devil had used food as bait before. Jesus responded by quoting scripture and claiming there's more life to there's more to life than bread alone. 
And the Gospel of Matthew adds, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which may be what leads the devil to quote scripture in a subsequent temptation. The second temptation is toward power. The devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says rather provocatively, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. This statement has serious and sobering implications, and clearly some political leadership bears out this claim. The devil offers it all to Jesus if he will bow down and worship him. Jesus must have perceived this power as temptation since it's one of the most powerful of human drives and it's one that would have met the messianic, messianic expectations of his upbringing and his people. The Jews were dispirited by the Roman occupation and such a magnificent political change would without doubt establish his rule. But would that also change their hearts? And there was the price. Jesus responded by harking back to the first commandment. The price was too high. With the third commandment, the devil pulled out all the stops. He took Jesus to Jerusalem, to the top of the temple, and once more began casting doubt on his vocation, his high calling. The devil, the devil said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels charge over you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's here that the devil quotes scripture for his own advantage, using the beautiful, consoling words of the 91st Psalm. Here Jesus is tempted to show his special relationship with God. We can assume this was difficult to resist. For one thing, the temple had not recognized him as the Messiah, and they never would. A rabbinic tradition reads, when the king Messiah reveals himself, then he comes and stands on the roof of the holy place. This act would convince them all. But are miracles, which are acts of divine beneficence, to be called out for evidence, to be expected when requested? Is this the relationship of creature to creator? Fritz Kunkel once wrote, every human being who prays seriously has experiences of this kind. Some miraculous experience, some unforeseen help or guidance, some happening against the law of averages will make that person feel he or she is protected in a special way and that the infinite power of creation cooperates with her or him. It's a grave temptation to expect God to bail us out of dangerous situations that we have chosen. We are, in effect, tempting God, and Jesus responds that we are not to do so. And with the third temptation, the devil left him. But, as our Gospel of Luke hastens to add, until an opportune time. Jesus had passed through his initiation of both great light and great darkness, and so began his ministry. What does this tell us as we move into the penitential season of Lent? First, 
It is an appropriate gospel after the season of Epiphany, which is symbolized by the bright star. It's appropriate that we look at darker issues. We've stood in the light, and now it's time to learn our way in the dark. But most importantly, it speaks of a right relationship with God. In our first lesson, the story of Adam and Eve, we see the first couple also standing in the light in the garden. And then the serpent brings the voice of temptation and they succumb. While there can be much said about the story of Adam and Eve, and it has been re-examined and reinterpreted in recent years to shed new light on the history of women and ancient religions where the serpent was worshipped, its purpose this first Sunday of Lent is to demonstrate the very human tendency to disobey and fall from grace. The first couple was persuaded to disobey because they wanted to be as God. Disobedience to God, the tension between my will and thy will, is the root of all sin. It is the tension that created the cross. Our second lesson from Paul's letter to Rome sets forth the Christian theological position that the grace and righteousness of Jesus is the antidote to humanity's fall. Just as the first sin brought condemnation and death to all, so the life and sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross brought justification and life for all. The righteousness and grace of Jesus was based on his clear adherence to the law as stated in Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. Jesus did not waver when tempted with a ministry of bread to win over the masses, or with tremendous political power, or with the use of signs and magic. Jesus chose to have his only authority come from God. And so as we struggle with our own temptations, we do well to remember that Jesus was also tempted, and he overcame evil and maintained his moral compass by loving God and keeping his relationship with God above all else. Jesus is the light of the world, and that is the light that will guide us through our dark times. Amen.